0: show broadcast almost live in portland on x-ray fm and in vancouver at kxrw or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service i'm patrick emerson professor of economics at oregon state university and with me as always is jeff alworth author of several books including the beer bible hey jeff hey patrick how's it going no talk man (laughs) i know well somebody just decided to decide that they were too good to work and took the whole month of january off
1: yeah, that was a smart man. Who was that? I
0: mean, how about self-indulgent or something? What?
1: Yeah, a guy who gets three months off every year, <laughs> rain or shine, given... I, I'll i hear nothing. I, I, uh,
0: I think the accurate thing to say is I don't get paid three months out of the year, <laughs> but I still have to work my butt off so that I can continue to have my job. Well, as a
1: close observer of your activities, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but... Uh, <laughs>
0: Well you don't see the you don't see the the overnight hours. It's true. It's true. Hard at work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so we're here on Zoom. We are because we had a snow apocalypse. We were gonna
1: be talking uh in Hood River today, but that was that those plants were scotched by Mother Nature. Yeah. So last
0: night the second largest snowfall one day snowfall in recorded history of Portland happened yeah, which is kind
1: of surprising to me because I guess it was two thousand eight we got like three or four or five or I don't know it rained.
0: it snowed for a long time, and we got but that was day after day, yeah, this was like yeah. the single day snowfall nineteen forty three I think they said was the biggest i think that's we, right. we, had, we had, the official was ten point six or ten point eight inches something like that um so that's a lot of snow for us
1: that is a lot of snow that that that, every everybody in portland has been doing nothing but reading about all this stuff and uh when i read about that i think that's at the national weather service official thing and it's out in eastern part of the city which is typically in the snow you know come down the gorge so you get more out there we we don't have 11 inches i'd say we have some somewhere around six or maybe a little bit
0: more than that here what do you got yeah, I think it's probably maybe more like eight inches that we have here. It was, it's a lot.
2: Yeah, oh, uh, I know it's, it's a lot. lot. Six, it's fun, us, six but
0: it was, I mean, snow was anticipated. They weren't sure how much, they weren't sure when, they didn't think a lot. And so this one was like far out on the tail of the distribution of possible outcomes. Right. And I got stuck in it coming home last night from Corvallis. I made it 80 miles, just fine, and the last mile... Was uh, took me like two mile, two hours to get uh, to get home because snow, it was practically a blizzard. It was beautiful, it was, but my car was running out of gas. I was one of those, I like, oh, I better shut it off when I'm, when I'm waiting here. I hope I can make it home. What I was really hoping is that people wouldn't uh, spin out in front of me and then basically completely stop. Yeah, uh, I could have walked at that point, but still, I didn't want to. Uh, anyway, so there you go. <laughs>
1: We were also out and about and I was also looking at the carnage that was going on especially along the bus lines and uh, we we were delayed you know slow going but um, we had no trouble getting around town we were actually I'm um, here uh, with Sally's two brothers and one of their friends and uh, we went to a festival of dark arts over the weekend and we've been going to brew pubs and breweries around town and we were just going about our day yesterday and we were at Zogel house and yeah, snowing and then we went to two more places which was awesome uh the best place in the world to be when it's snowing outside especially if you can see the flurries is with a you know in a warm pub with a cold beer in your hand it was it was really cool
0: yeah yeah uh and i i thought it came in earlier than they expected i thought i was being shrewd and got out of corvallis early enough but no. Yep. Uh, but it's beautiful now and my wife a teacher and my son a high school student both have a snow day today a day off so they're enjoying life um i still have to work corvallis has no snow so it's a normal day at oregon state gotcha this will just be a blip on the screen by the by the time people if
1: they don't listen to this immediately they'll they're from portland it'll be 48 and
0: rainy and nobody will remember this but that's where we are now yeah well uh you know i do get also one one final thing we get off the weather but um although i know that's the highlight of everybody's podcasting um experience with us it's right. uh i get really grumpy with all these people who s- start talking about how portland's ridiculous and doesn't know how to no one knows how to deal with the weather and this is one of those that it came in hard right at rush hour and there's no city on earth that is going to deal with this well i lived in denver for six years and and the storms that came in right at rush hour were a nightmare i it took me three hours one night to get home four mi- my four mile drive home took me three hours because of the same stuff so
1: yeah you know, even I, if you have uh you can, The infrastructure once once it's rush hour and all the cars are already on the road you're not plowing it you're not sanding it it's like it's just a parking lot
0: out there so exactly so i so i give i give i give uh the portlanders a a pass on that one anyway uh what that meant as we mentioned earlier is that we weren't able to get out to hood river because uh today we will be joined by uh freem's campbell morrissey He's currently the head brewer at Freem, and he recently crafted the recipe and formulation for a collaboration Freem is doing uh, with our very own Jeff Allworth. woo So not only do you report the news, but you make the news or whatever How? Whatever analogy you want to use. That's really cool. In designing the beer, a pub-strength Pilsner, uh, Campbell used a California-grown floor model that I... <laughs> I kind of kind of swallowed that. Floor malt. It seemed like a perfect opportunity to have him on the show and dig into malting. It's a subject that can get technical pretty fast, but it's critically important in making beer taste the way it does. Uh, so we're going to have Campbell walk us through its secrets. Uh, and we're going to do that via Zoom, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but still, a uh, fascinating talk. So all that soon, but first we got to get to the news.
1: In our long absence, a lot of stuff happened. There are a couple of items of special note, though, that we have selected for your your listening pleasure. Uh, in our regular feature, today in Cask, we have some very exciting news. Did you hear about this, Patrick? Seattle's all Cask machine house brewing. Did you hear it? Did you hear? Oh,
0: no, 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 no. They found a new location. Wait a minute. Oh, go ahead. I see yeah. it in your text what you're about to explain. Okay. Late last year, the brewery announced
1: its landlord was not going to renew their lease and Machine House's future was dimming. There was actually a lot of worry that the brewery would go out of business. However, fortunately this week, we learned that Bill Arnott had found a new location. It's three miles due east of his current place, which is in South Seattle in Georgetown, uh, in what uh, was the former home of breweries Northwest Peaks and Spinnaker Bay. So for
0: well, so a I small was small group prepared. of people who can get there. That's awesome. That is fantastic. I was completely unaware of this, or as is typical these days, I maybe have been was aware and then completely forgot. Yeah, uh, I I'm pretty sure I would have remembered though, because that would have been a tragedy beyond compare um, if Machine House went away. It's a little sad because Machine House is named after the place it sits, which is some old machine house of it's, it's, what is it a pair, i can't remember it was a power plant or a rail something or
1: it was the old rainier brewery the machine house of the old rainier brewery it was oh, like it? the perfect place and it's a tragedy that he's had to move out just because there was never a more perfect place ever but but given the choice of losing the brewery and having them relocate this is by far the superior choice yeah and
0: the name the name will last no matter where where uh he is so that's great news because the machine house is as frequent listeners know one of our all one of our top faves in the in the world totally all cask british style brewery so uh okay and the second item uh is uh sorry i gotta find it here have you heard of the monocacy Yeah, monocacy, I don't know. Monocacy, monocacy, monocacy hop. Uh, Have you heard of the monocacy hop? It is a a highly unusual entrant in the flow of new varieties, discovered growing wild on a farm in Frederick County, Maryland. They sent it to the USDA, who reported that it was completely genetically unique. An unusual hop with twice the levels of beta to alpha acids, it's just 2.5% alpha, it is quite a bit different from the hops coming from Yakima and it is described as fruit, floral, and spicy all in one. The hop has a long way to go before it becomes a commercial product, but it's an exciting discovery. That is incredible. What? Uh, who discovered it? Well, the farmer knew it was there. The farmer, uh, this is
1: actually a kind of a cool thing, was an Oregonian and had <laughs> actually picked hops in his youth. So when he found it Growing Wild, he had a took kind of a shine to it and did not cut it down and let it grow all these years. And then, uh, through a series of events, um, it got in, you know, somebody, somebody decided to run it up the flagpole. I think the local like Maryland, um, university of Maryland or some, some university learned of it. And, um, there was another wild hop somewhere else, but it turns out it was just centennial, But this one was cool man this one was totally unique and and i wow. need to track down i i'm i'm in the process of trying to track down um you know is this a is this a north like a, a new native north american variety we we know wow. about you know mexicanus as a as a wild native variety so is this, an, this does this represent another one because that would be super cool so yeah. i'm i'm quite excited about this
0: and it reminds me what well, uh of course my old mind is not good at recalling but we talked to uh the sort of farm to glass uh brewery wasn't it in maryland and the whose name escapes me now but um i wonder how close they are uh so,
1: the, the farm the farm brewery yeah uh they were in virginia oh virginia okay yeah
0: All right. Well, still close, relatively close by. Maybe they can get hold of the hop and start creating some beer from it.
1: That's right. Probably would. It's probably the same growing climate and region. So that would I would would expect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, we're going to turn now towards malt. Not entirely, but uh, talk a little about malt, because we need to get into our interview with Campbell Morrissey. Indeed. Uh, Anything you want to say in order to set up the interview? I think
1: we can just go into it. How about you? Um, Yeah, let's do.
0: (laughs) We're such pros that it needs no explanation. That's right. Okay, so here we are with Campbell, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, we're happy to have uh, joining us today, Campbell Morrissey. Campbell has led a fascinating career. After graduating from the University of Colorado, he started brewing at Durango Brewing. After a couple of years there, he decided to get a master's in brewing, and then went to the famed British Brewing School at Harriet Watt in Edinburgh. Following that, he returned to the United States to make whiskey washes at Stranahan's in Colorado before going back into brewing at Mother Road in Flagstaff, where he also taught courses at Northern Arizona. In 2020, he started a PhD program at OSU, go Beavers, uh, where he focuses primarily on investigating barley varieties, contribution to beer flavor. Finally, two years ago, he took over the head brewer job at Freem. Welcome, Campbell.
2: Thanks for having me. Uh, very excited to be a part of this and chat a little bit of, about all things barley and beer and how those inter interplay in my career and certainly in the industry.
1: Totally, yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Uh, before we we go too far uh, with the program, let's just clarify that the uh, the research intern got all the
0: facts straight on your bio. <laughs>
2: Sounds like you read my LinkedIn profile. Your Sorry.
0: your Wiki, your Wikipedia page is up to date. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I I may I may
1: have gone to the LinkedIn profile. Um, <laughs> <I may. laughs> Excellent. Well, we are excited to have you on because uh, in about a week or two, something like that, you are going to release a collaboration uh, that Freem and uh, I, in the form of my blog, did uh, on a on a Czech Vicepny which is um, a lower alcohol Pilsner uh, kind of beer. And you did a really cool thing by running with uh, uh, the kind of brief and using some cool local ingredients, including a local hop and a local barley. And kn- knowing your background, it seemed like a great opportunity to get together and actually delve in, you, use the opportunity of this barley you found and the malting uh, the, the four maltings, to talk about what barley and what malt contribute to the flavor of beer. Uh, I personally wanted to have you on the, the podcast for, I don't know, six months or something. So this seemed like a perfect opportunity to to, to get together. So thank you for doing that. Um, wh- why don't you tell us a little bit about your own background, um, as much as you wish, but really how you, you know, how barley and malting became um, a passion of yours. I think that's uh, you know, you're you're going deeper than most people do.
2: Yeah, I mean, you have <clears throat> had my chronological background pretty pretty much nailed. I've uh, worn a lot of hats in the industry, and I've been fortunate to do a lot of different things, uh, both academically and in the industry. So, uh, about I got into specifically into a research mode while I was working at Mother Road and Flagstaff. Uh, we had a One of my former brewers had started his master's at NAU and I had been teaching a course over there and working with a professor of chemistry, they started looking at uh, draft line tubing and the effect of hot metabolites on uh, draft line sanitation. Um, Some really fascinating work. Uh, I highly recommend doing a Google Scholar search for Cameron Selma and checking out what they found, but it really got me on a, reinstilled the research academic bug in me and was kind of you know seeing my time at Mother Road come to an end. Just been there for a while. grew them from about fifteen hundred barrels to uh, just about thirteen thousand, and we we're uh, shoot. We were going to shoot for twenty thousand uh, for twenty twenty, but obviously that uh, kind of <laughs> derailed things a little bit. Um, and you know, I uh, in my graduate school, my master's, you know, we got exposed to a lot of raw material stuff, and I learned early on that hop chemistry was really hard. So I uh, kind of fell in love with barley through that. Um, in all seriousness, though, I do really like barley and uh, that's con- that contribution via malt. Actually, thankfully, uh, I started looking through the Brewers Association Research Grants. Um, so pre-COVID, the BA was really active in funding research related to brewing. Um, and they do a lot of raw material funding. Um, so Tom Shellhammer gets a lot of funding through them historically, and then a lot of barley breeding programs um, had started to get funding. And so kind of just started exploring who might be interested in taking on a graduate student. Um, I was certainly looking for funding. So that was uh, something important to me and uh, got in touch with Pat Hayes at Oregon State. And amazingly, he decided to take a flyer on someone with some academic experience, but certainly not the traditional PhD route experience. And really to take on the work that they had already started with barley variety contribution to beer flavor. Um, they started that as a response to a Brewers Association white paper that was really calling the industry to start breeding varieties that are more suited for craft all malt brewing. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of the the, <clears throat> the malt quality specs that AMBA and its members had really been pushing for, which was really geared towards adjunct brewing, so high enzyme, higher protein, um, Extract is obviously an important thing, but not necessarily things that are uh, needed for 100% malt beer. Um, And we still see a lot of that, the knock on effects of that today. Um, You know, North American barley supply chain is still dominated by, you know, 150 DP malt, 200 fan malt, um, things that are just well in excess of what we need. And so I was really interested in also understanding how barley variety was gonna contribute to that beer flavor. You know, I think everyone, can tell you, you know, your casual IPA drinker can probably name three or four hops. Mm-hmm. Um, many pro brewers couldn't even tell you three to four barley varieties. So that's just to go sh- show how like we've we've really turned hops into this icon of beer, but very few people know what malts in barley, much of, And maybe they'll know Maris Otter or Golden Promise, those kind of those heirloom heritage uh, varieties, but they're not going to know what's in their stream coming in. You know, do they have Connect? Do they have Synergy? depending on where they're getting it. And so I think there's a lot of, there's still a lot of uh, low hanging fruit to do some education as well as research.
1: So let's let's talk about this, uh, this the formulation for the recipe you did and kind of use the, 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 the barley, the, the malt product that you found as an example of why you would care about a base malt and how it would be appropriate for beer style um, you know, what, you know, we, we, you and I talked about what would be appropriate for a Aviceknyi, how it's made in the Czech Republic. And then you took that and ran with it. Um, tell us what malt you found and why you thought that would be appropriate in this beer style.
2: Certainly, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm really stoked on loggers and Czech lagers in general, because they are, they're just raw material driven. You know, they are There's a lot of, you know, process and precision there, but it really is gonna showcase malt and hop. And Czech Czech brewing and Czech brewing history is really unique where they historically have not really looked outside of their borders for raw materials. Um, If you even look back at like British brewing, everyone talks about Marisata and those types of things. You know, in like the turn of the century, 1900s, 1920s, you know, most British malt or a good chunk of British malt was actually grain grown in California um and so it's just kind of interesting how like global the market had become in what in germany then western germany and then obviously in the uk but the czech republic still seems to have really held on to a domestic breeding through brewing supply chain um which i think is really fascinating and so when jeff started talking about some of these ethoses behind these beers that really you know was like that hit the nail on the head for me and so Thankfully, I've been uh, started some research collaborations with the folks down at Admiral Maltings in the Bay Area. Uh, um, they're the largest floor malting operation in the United States um, and a large craft maltster in general. And they've been really instrumental in driving California-grown grain and really revitalizing barley in both the Sacramento Valley and then the Klamath Basin. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into the agronomics, but uh, barley plays a really important role in the agricultural life cycle of a lot of the west um from the mountain west the pacific northwest and then down into california but over the last you know few decades it's really diminished in acreage in washington oregon and california and so uh, as water becomes more important you know bring barley back onto the landscape is going to be a really good tool uh to make that happen and so early on they were really big collaborators with the uc davis small grains breeding program mm. and worked closely with uh lynn gallagher who unfortunately passed away uh, about 18 months ago i think and they actually co-collaborated on a release of this new variety called buddha 12. Uh, and so i think buddha 12 came out in 2020 and they've since uh pretty much are contracting it, all the acreage of buddha 12 in the sacramento valley and so they're going Butta 12 down there And then they're growing grain up in Tule Lake. uh, So that's on the California side of the Klamath Basin. And that's where we have been doing most of our collaboration. And so we're working on some fall planted winter lines uh, that will be coming out soon, um, but they're also contracting some other acreage. Um, So the malt we used in particular was from the Sacramento Valley. Um, So not quite local, local, but I think still feeding into that kind of same ethos and that same supply chain. Um, And then you then couple that with they're still doing everything on the floor. Um, You know, the only floor maltings that we would have access to would be coming from the UK. And so this was a way of, you know, getting some of this traditional malting style um, actually made in the US and actually made by somebody that we trust from a quality standpoint, you know. It's, you know, craft malting is kind of like craft brewing was a few, you know, a few decades ago. And you still have to pick and choose who you're working with to really make sure that you have reliable suppliers. Uh, But thankfully, we have a really good partner with these folks um, and really excited about using their malt. And this is just like a perfect opportunity. Showcases the Pilsner-style malt that they make. And then uh, we cap it off with some some new local hops. uh, And we can kind of go into that a little bit as well. Uh, Uh, Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So uh, talk a little bit about the characteristics that Floor malting, as opposed to more commercial, you know, large-scale malting, does uh, what is it? How does that affect the malt's flavor, the way it performs in the glass? Like, would a would a consumer notice the difference between a barley malted floor malted and commercial, you know, normally commercially malted? What what is that? What goes on there?
2: Well, you know, kind of an interesting one. Um, there, so yes and no. Uh, I think. There's the biggest driver of malt flavor is the malt house effect, um, and that's between pneumatic malt houses. That's between, you know, you could probably tell the difference between malt made in the the Rar Shakopee facility, which is the largest malting facility in the world, and then their their Alex Alberta malt house. So, just that malt house effect certainly is going to play a big role. But then when you start coupling this with floor malting, and so we're using one, we're going to get less blended grain. So we're we're not getting multiple varieties blended to a spec, we're getting what we get. And so the maltster is constantly making slight adjustments and slight tweaks there. But really what's driving uh, floor malting differences is how the germination bed uh, is operating. And you're gonna see some definite flavor differences. It's gonna be harder to push modification as high um, in a floor maltings. And what we expect is to see kind of a little more of that rustic brew house character come through because we've had to kind of manipulate the brew house to deal with some of that malt. Now, granted, this is not even close to as, you know, under modified or as poorly modified as, you know, malt would have been 100 years ago in the Czech Republic, but we certainly could then take a different approach to it. And now, how how much of that is actually gonna manifest into final beer flavor, and where is that all gonna drive from? Um, You know, we're still trying to figure that out from a research perspective. We're actually working on a project with them right now to actually understand you know what the malt house effect between floor and pneumatic maltings are using the same varieties so the science is still a little out there on it um, but we believe that there is a unique kind of rustic character that you get in your lagers that you just can't get with commodity malt it at all so floor and pneumatic i think just using kind of unique varieties that are malted kind of bespokely is going to change the flavor of your beer
1: that's really cool uh
2: Plus, That's it's a cool marketing tool.
0: Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> uh, yeah, on that on that note, uh, as I'll play the I'll play the role of the cynical economist, but it all sounds expensive. Small uh, craft malts, floor malting is is if if the customer doesn't sort of appreciate it and is willing to pay for it, does it pencil
2: out? You know, it, I think. You know, for this, it's this one's easy to do, right? We're doing fifteen barrels that we're going to sell exclusively in our tasting room. You know, that's like our highest margin beer, and so, you know, would this pencil out for to change our you know pills in the white cans? Absolutely not. Um, for malted or not, that's just. But th- what this shows is that there's room for for all these players in the malting supply chain. You know, just because we don't use craft malt for our base malt for our high volume beers doesn't mean we can't use it for something else. And this is where we have that opportunity to do some consumer education. Um, you know, and and then there's always, you know, I, I'm the, the biggest cynic when it comes to all of these things. <laughs> and, you know, so the, there's always like, there's always the downside to the story. You know, I mentioned the Golden Promise, um, you know, which is everyone's, oh, Golden Promise, it's like this heirloom mole. You know, it was it was a product of an irradiation mutant. They just zapped it with, with radiation to induce <laughs> mutations and then selected the semi-dwarf That grew really well. And so, you know, that was done in the 50s in the nuclear era. And so, you know, you can really kind of, if you peel enough layers of that onion. um, But I I do think that if we educate the consumer, not just to floor malting in general, but why this is important because we're bringing barley to a landscape that didn't have barley for a while. And that's going to help with water conservation in a water stricken area. Um, we're working with a small floor maltster that has opportunities to take what we do in brewing and apply that to malt. You know, I think that's where that whole story gets told. And if people just use, use floor malting thing as that kind of like buzzword or way to just associate, you know, regardless if they actually know what that means, I think that's important.
1: So you have mentioned as we've gone along uh, a few things that are words that you hear uh, when you hear about malting and you hear brewers talk about malting and I and I think uh, many people don't know what they are I and the truth is I don't know what they are perfectly well so since we have you here it would be great if you answered some of these questions um, about you know how how brewers think of malt and how it works in the brew house Um, and I sent you a list so I can kind of go through that one thing you've already mentioned and I think that maybe the most important concept is this concept of modification, which is uh, something you mentioned is uh, something that's changed over time as technology has improved uh, and our agronomics maybe have improved. But, um, I, you know, what is modification and, and how, why does it matter?
2: Uh, so the most basic way to describe modification is effectively how well did malting work you know, malting is taking raw grain that, in essence, is not fit for brewing and making it perfectly fit for brewing. Um, and so what we're trying to do is a few things. We're trying to you know access starch. so we need to break down big long chain uh, you know beta glucans that are include you know in the cell walls of this and so break that down so we can actually access all this starchy this starch package. We need to start. Uh, stimulating the production of enzymes. So what we want to do is once we can access that starch, well, now we just have super long chains of sugars. Um, this is not fermentable to yeast. You know, ye- most yeast will ferment up to three chain sugars. So think of just that as three glucose molecules tied together. Okay. Well, we're talking about starch chains that are hundreds to thousands of glucose molecules long. So this is not, metabol- this is not able to be, you know, used up by yeast this is why grain is so great. You know, these things are very stable. You know, they can't be attacked by fungi, by bacteria and, you know, used. So they're very great storage packages. Um, and there's within these plants, they have tons of enzymes that they can produce to use up those, basically their storage reserves for plant growth. Um, the malting process will also start stimulating that by breaking down proteins and signaling hormones that will start producing these enzymes. And so, Modification is kind of a general rate of how well that that actually happened. So first we think about cytolytic modification. So basically, how well did we break down beta-glucans? And then proteolytic modification. How much soluble protein did we produce? How much enzymes did we produce? And then how much free amino nitrogen? And free amino nitrogen is basically just pure raw amino acids. And that's going to be used by yeast as a yeast nutrient. Um, but there's a downside to all that and so over modification is great if you're converting 40 percent of your grist in corn uh pretty unnecessary if you're going to do 100 percent all malt mash
1: okay so is and, there is there a right amount of modification then or is it does it depend on what the brewer wants
2: uh definitely depends what the brewer wants and it's certainly Uh, Very misunderstood, in my opinion. Um, We talk a lot about beta glucan. Yeah. Um, Historically, you know, the AMBA spec for beta glucan, um, I believe, just off the top of my head, and sorry, I say AMBA a lot. That's the American Malting Barley Association. Um, They're the trade group for malting barley, both growers, breeders, users, um, an excellent organization. Um, And so I certainly don't say anything about them negatively, uh, but, you know, for 30 years of their existence, they were, their only members were Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, you right. know. And so People they were saying the are industrial light
1: lager, so it really exactly. a kind of brewing.
2: Right. Um, and so the specs that they had derived was 100 parts per million beta-glucan. Um, and so, but what we're finding now is probably most brewers, especially most craft brewers who aren't Probably not going to filter, who maybe just don't have really high throughput mash tons and louder tons, um, are probably not going to see issues uh, upwards of 250. And so, one of the ways to get low beta glucan is you just have to kind of keep pushing modification as a whole, and that tends to link. And so, to get low beta glucan, you're also going to get more soluble protein, more fan, and higher diastatic power. So, your enzyme package which is great if you're making highly attenuated beer with not a lot of nutrient source from corn or rice. Not so great if you're making all malt beer that you want to control attenuation. And then fan, if you have, you need enough fan, but if you have too much, that's one of the main beer staling components. Um, so something we're working on now is just understanding how much fan is too much fan, mm-hmm. um, but fan staling will occur in you a know, few weeks in package.
1: Uh, interesting. Uh, and if you have so two of the words that I wanted to talk about were uh, beta glucan and fan. So you, it's awesome that you tied those in there. Um, if you, when in the brewing process, do you consume some of the fan so that it's not it's not left over for that to be stale to be a staling thing, or what happens to the fan?
2: Certainly, I mean the brewing the hot side of the process isn't 100% efficient. So you're never gonna recover all of your fan into your fermentation. Um, yeast will consume fan pretty rapidly. And so it will start, you know, yeast is gonna use fan to basically help metabolize the walls um, and various metabolite, metabolite, uh, metabolite pathways, um, reducing diacetyl, things like that. Uh, but it only needs so much. Um, and so once it's done consuming it, it'll just leave it free in the beer. And so then you'll start, uh, sorry, someone just sprinted out about this. Uh, not, not free from distractions. Um, but if you have too much, then there's nothing else to consume it. Um, historically, it's also been a problem if you have issues with microbial contamination, because um, mm-hmm. lactobacillus will also want to use fan as a, use, as a nutrient source. Um, so, you know, you know, that was kind of a bigger problem in older plants where you had a lot of hard pipe. And you just always, we're going to have some sort of microbial issue across smaller breweries, you know, like us are, you know, a little tighter. Um, We have more visibility on our process piping and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But generally we're worried about it from a flavor stability standpoint. And now that if you can control oxygen in your package, great, but that's only part of the problem. Um, And so that's where you're going to get a lot of these kind of sherry off notes, um, kind of like, you know, sweet caramelly character um some of it'll go kind of like cooked uh cooked potato savory and so lots of things that aren't really great characters in uh you know white light, light lager or pilsner beer or ipa for that matter um and not to say hops aren't a problem here too hops do contribute a lot of fan to the process um especially during dry hopping mm-hmm. and so that's something we're watching as well and i know they've been doing a lot of work down kind of at uc davis on that project
1: well that's interesting so maybe the uh uh, one of the reasons IPA, uh, high dry hop IPAs seem to not last so long is because they have a lot of fan. Could that be an issue?
2: You know, it's like the double whammy you got, you're adding, you probably have excess fan, uh, cause it's a high gravity brew as well. So you have excess fan and then you're adding a bunch of hops and hops just fade really quickly themselves. Like most of those, you know, metabolites are not very stable. So they're going to, they're going to fade off pretty quick. Um, so if you're going to drink a beer fresh, definitely drink IPA fresh.
1: Right. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about breeding. You hinted, uh, that there are, uh, many more breeding programs going on in the United States right now in terms of barley that are, uh, place specific. And I know when Patrick and I, uh, first went to Seattle to do some podcasting, we started hearing about this Skagit Valley malt and I later went up there and they have, you know, very different growing weather uh, climate than they do in Eastern Oregon, where they also grow barley. So and then that's got to be different than California. So talk a little bit about how this new era of of breeding is is focused on specific places to grow barley and how how breeders do that process and what they're looking for uh, you know, for each space, like what 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 is why is one barley more suited for another uh, for a one climate and not another?
2: Yeah. And, and so the first thing I just want to talk about is how how that happens. And it's, it's not like, you know, there was this like, okay, industry, we just need Copeland and we only want that grown everywhere. So only focus on all this. The thing is, barley kind of, as I mentioned, has really reduced acreage over the last hundred years. And it's not really a commodity crop anymore. You know, it's thought of as a commodity, but no one's growing... Barley for the open market. Um, So almost all malting barley is grown under contract, Um, and so you need someone to grow to contract acreage, Um, and so they're going to say, okay, we want you to grow this, that, and the other. Well, large maltsters want to contract things that they know they're going to be able to malt. Not going to have dormancy issues. Not going to have water sensitivity issues. Going to get good yields for the farmer. Um, Always important. Um, So because of that. That's kind of how we ended up with these kind of multi-environment varieties. And there's certainly within their subregions, you know, things that are going to do well in the Canadian Prairie are not going to necessarily do well in Washington or, you know, down in southern Idaho. Uh, irrigation plays a big role in that as well. But what craft malting is really starting to figure out is that they have, now that they know some of these breeders, like, ah, oh, cool. Look at all these lines that, like, are often going to get tossed because, well, you know, there's not a malting there's no one contracting acreage in Western Washington. Um, And so why would I, this happened to do well at this research station, but it's not going to do well in Eastern Washington. So there's really no point in continuing it. But if it has a lot of qualities you're interested in, you could champion that. Um, We're we're on the cusp of releasing a variety. We as an OSU with Admiral, that's probably only going to get contracted acreage in in the Klamath Basin. Mm. You know, this thing will probably have, we'll see a lifetime. It's probably entire life will be 3,000 acres for for like its entire time as a variety. And, you know, so super niche, but they have a lot of interest there. They have a lot of interest in winter barley, and they have a lot of interest in this line for some of its quality. Any, in a normal kind of breeding culling process that would have just gotten kicked because it didn't have, it just wasn't going to meet some expectation for its typical, the typical growing environments that we think of like southern idaho or montana or something like that
1: right uh let's bring it back to the the one that is going to be in this beer which will you spell that it's a weird it's a weird word and people might want to yeah later
2: uh and it's it's kind of a it's a mashup of two words and i'm trying to remember what they are uh but it's b-u-t-t-a dash 12. okay um and I think they kind of just liked it, like that name. I don't remember the entire story. Um, I'm actually going to be at Admiral Walting's this weekend, um, and so I'll ask. Okay. But. Yeah,
1: it's a weird name. It's not It's not as, uh, like the British really seem to take some pleasure in naming their barley varieties. They're quite, uh, sometimes they're whimsical, like Maris Otter, but sometimes they're, um, I don't know, they're distinctive, you know, optic. and various things so it, they're it's kind of it's kind of cool to have these names when you read about them but uh, uh I guess I guess but a twelve works
2: <laughs> well you know cores has a line called Bill Coors
1: there you <laughs> go yeah there you go.
2: <laughs> there's some funny ones out there
1: yeah so um, tell us about
2: what this malt it
1: uh, we we hope that anyone who's in the northwest can get to Hood River and try this beer on tap you know what are, what should they look for when they taste the beer what what are the qualities of this this barley and the way it was malted
2: yeah, I mean, I think the first thing, you know, we're going for is kind of that, like, distinct Pilsner malt graininess, um, where it's kind of a cross between, you know, like, whole wheat flour and, like, crackers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's not distracting, it's not husky, not astringent, um, but it's just kind of a pleasant grain character underneath. Um, we did do a decoction on this, as I mentioned. Some of these undermodified malts, or, you know, even properly modified from our perspective, really allow for lots of step mashing, lots of decoction mashing. Um, You can't really do that with kind of contemporary modification because you can really risk over attenuating your beers. Um, And so we see that on our new brew house, certainly, um, where if if we did like a really full step on Pilsner's, we would be down in like in the low one points uh, for finishing gravity. And so you have to actually kind of really temper that so um, that's
1: very dry for anyone who is not familiar with their plato scale
2: right sorry uh but this allowed us to do that so you're going to get some of that what i love about kind of our simple decoction is that you get these really light uh multi malt forward lager beers so they're light in color they're light in body but they have this like kind of like toasty bread character like really you know rich bread character that like, doesn't come through in any like other sensory perception, like mouthfeel or color. And I think it's just this, like you just get this like touch of Mayard reaction going on in the decoction and being able to do that with this type of malt is really exciting. So you get that nice kind of grainy character, the kind of more rich, uh, kind of toast, whole grain bread. And I think that's a really lovely way to have a lager, especially when we're doing these really low ABV beers. You know, th- I think this is gonna be like 4% um which is you know a big difference to me from like the high fours even and right. so when you don't have that much body left you know and we're not making free ultra here so you know we want something that's going to feel feel rich and like you know satiating but still kind of like be that kind of crushable you know session beer right so, uh,
1: in your other hat, you're a brewer, not a malt guy. Uh, so you know a lot about uh, everything else. And you mentioned, you hinted at the hop here, which is a cool hop. So talk about that too. You didn't use which is yeah. the really obvious go-to, but you chose something different.
2: Yeah. So uh, we went with the the hop Lorian. It's a new hop from Indie Hops. Which, um, putting my OSU hat back on, uh, <laughs> the Indie Hops breeding program is a public-private partnership with Oregon State. Um, and so they actually fund the breeder at Oregon state to do all the hop breeding. Um, and what's really unique about them is that they're breeding specifically for the Oregon environment um, where the only people really having done that in the last 20 years has been the USDA. Um, and the USDA has a much different mandate than private hop breeding companies um, such as like, you know, uh, Yakima chief ranches or Haas or Steiner. Um, and so we have all these great varieties that are bred in Yakima and some of them do well in the Oregon environment and some don't, um, you know, Citra mosaic mosaic especially has actually done really well in Oregon. Um, Citra to some extent as well, but like other hops like El Dorado don't do well here. Um, Amarillo is kind of on the fence. Some people love Oregon, Amarillo. Some people think of it as its own kind of beast. Like it's, it's so affected by the environment here that it's, it's almost its own hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what's really cool is now we have these really kind of aroma-focused hops that are coming out of that are really bred for the Oregon environment. And so, Glorian was their first release that's that's geared towards that kind of domestic noble type. And um, so, that was a big uh, ethos of the uh, hop, USDA hop breeding programs for a long time because who are they breeding hops for? Uh, big light lager brewers. Um, so, you know, Willamette, Sterling, uh, all of these hops that came out of the breeding programs were geared towards mimicking. German or Czech varieties. And so we're really excited to get our hands on this because we use a ton of strata in our IPAs. Um, Mm -hmm. And so strata was the the one that everyone knows from Indie Hops. Um, But now they have this kind of more delicate, more herbal, more floral uh, hop that I think is going to play really well in the lager. And it comes from down the road. You know, we're an hour from the Willamette Valley. And so that to us is really special. Um, You know, there's a whole war in eastern europe right now. So there's the whole like logistics and supply chain issues associated with relying on hops from, you know, europe, but it's also really cool to have this kind of expression of the pacific northwest and truly in our beers, you know, we get water from here, our yeast is from here, hops are from here, barley's from the state below us, but that's close enough.
1: Right. Patrick, are you going to jump in with something?
0: No, I, I mean, I was just going to make a comment, which is that I think early on when craft brewers in the Northwest started experimenting with pilsners, it was all just how can we take sort of a basic generic pilsner malt and then layer in Northwest hops. And uh, so I think it's 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 great to start featuring the, the malt because I think it's an underappreciated and I think consumers will really notice it in pilsners, unlike, I don't know, maybe more British styles where that just kind of seems like a part
2: of the beer, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think craft malters, to kind of keep continue on that uh, quick aside, like craft malters have a, an important role to play in all of this. Um, whereas, you know, hop growers aren't are quite as like, con- poten- don't have the potential to be consumer facing as much. Um, but one one's really cool things about Admiral, they have a tap room and they serve only beers that use their mall. I mean, they're in, the, they're in the Bay Area, so they have a lot of people locally that they can get beers from. But it was, when I went to visit, it was bad. And so... What a great way to kind of like, you can see the malt being made. So it's like going to a brewery, but then you can have this like whole nother perspective of what's going on in the industry. And then you can support this kind of whole local supply chain of that. And so, you know, Skagit certainly has that potential and other malters definitely have opportunities to get the consumers involved with that whole process um, because they don't necessarily need to be, they're not limited or I don't know, hops are a little weird. Um, I'm sure you've been to a hop processing facility. It's not exactly a place you're like hanging out for a beer, but now you got Top wire right. down right? Downing uh, Crosby, and so mm-hmm. I think in the hopway, there maybe that's the future as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I just, you, go ahead. I'm no, go I ahead. I was going to
0: ask you if you, could you just uh, explain just a little bit more about uh, how uh, barley helps with water management in areas that haven't been growing it.
2: Yeah, so. Uh, barley can help in water management in a few different ways. It's te- typically just a lower water intensive, less water intensive crop than than wheat, even for example, um, than alfalfa certainly. Um, you know, so it does play a really nice role in a rotation. Um, and and I preface that again, it's not a commodity crop, and usually it's a rotational crop. Right. So barley will typically in this region will follow winter wheat. Um, so it's really. It's a really nice way to get barley or grain on the soil in a lower kind of water use rate. Still need to irrigate in a lot of places, um, and we have a lot of dryland. But well, we do have a lot of dryland agriculture out east. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is and what we do mostly at OSU is winter barley. So we talk about barley in two different growth habits. We have spring planted, winter planted, or fall planted. Um, the great thing about fall planted barley is that it has a lot of these ecosystem services built into it. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them being much lower water requirements, uh, because typically, or irrigation requirements, I should say, when when water requirements are high is when water availability is high. So we're talking about kind of early spring. So you're coming off spring snowmelt, um, and so you have all of these, you know, you have a lot of water built in. However, when spring-planted barley is needing water, it's later in the season. So often, when a lot of the the, the you know reservoirs or things that have started to run drier um and it allows for a plant to be kept in the ground over winter so you're protecting topsoil you're you're doing some inherent weed control um there's a lot a lot of less pest, pest pressure um so yields also typically are higher and so getting more winter barley in the ground especially in places uh that are water starved is really important yeah thank
1: you yeah uh we don't want to keep you too long i know you're at work but uh the the last question i have is just kind of a forward-looking one uh as the united states as brewers in the united states do become more familiar with their barley varieties and their malt houses and they think of making a pilsner with something other than vireman malt uh or or even uh you know use heirloom varieties in 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 other uh types of beer that they may play a more subtle role but still a significant one what, you know, what, are we going to see many more small malt houses that provide this role? Are we going to see the emergence of like craft malt houses where they're bigger so they can supply more breweries or how do you know, how, how do you get the, how do you scale this thing up? So, bre- so American brewers can start using cooler malt and cooler barley varieties.
2: Uh, I think the answer to all that is yes. Um, you know, I think we're going to see kind of like craft brewing, you know, Define crap brewing to me right now. You know, can you? It's <laughs> no. So I think I think that's where we're going to go with malting. I think we're already seeing it from the big malters offering environment killers as they like to call them. You know, and um, you know we got various, so various things are coming out of big malt houses where they're changing entire malt protocols. They're shifting production schedules. They're they're basically scrapping how they used to operate, which was you know basically consistent malt profiles, consistent malt regimes so that they could move things through as quickly as possible because they didn't want to store lots of things. Yeah, you know, they're not set up for massive storage. Um so they want to bring in a few different grain or a few different lots, blend them, malt them, ship them out. Um, and so they're starting to see the market change and so they're willing to kind of adjust how they do how they do business. We're gonna see a lot more small mulsters probably pop up. Um people who might be like maybe farm mulsters um, or just kind of working with a very small local supply chain. But I do think then we're going to see this kind of like middle part um, where we see some of these larger craft maltsters that are going to fill, be able to start filling niches that aren't currently available. Um, In our email, we talked a little bit about price point and how that's changed. You know, it used to be just craft malt was really expensive, um, even more expensive than European imports, but that's changing pretty dramatically um, with supply chain coming from Europe right now. And as some of these start getting bigger and bigger and get the economy of scale, they're still never gonna meet, you know, our you know, kind of commodity pilsner malt pricing. But they'll start competing pretty well. And if not out out competing, European imports certainly. And some of even the specialty malts from the big malsters. So that's a really interesting change, you know, to see. And that's already that's happening now.
1: And that'll be, you know, as the the climate changes and we become much more sensitive to uh our uh carbon footprints having having people being able to buy locally instead of having it shipped across the world will 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 be a knock on effect which will be great so all of this seems like good news happening
2: yeah absolutely and i think as we get breeding programs uh we're already seeing it. you know we have uh but a 12 came out we're releasing one at osu there's one that came out of virginia tech avalon you know that's really important too because I think everyone does want the heirloom, right? They love that story and it's great, but right. <laughs> there's a reason heirlooms are heirlooms. You know they're they're not they don't meet commercial agronomic expectations, and so you someone's got to pay for that. So someone's got to pay the farmer more for lower yields. Someone's got to pay the maltster more because they paid the farmer. So it's like you know those things just have to cost money. And then there's kind of the dirty side of heirlooms where you know. Maris Otter takes a lot of fungicide to grow, you know, <laughs> like everyone thinks of like, Oh, the the farmer in the flat cap who knocks off and hits a couple of pints at lunch. Like, yeah, well, he just like nuked the place. Um, and so like, you know, we have to think, we have to take that into consideration as well. And that's what we're seeing in the hop industry. You know, Socks was down like 40% last year, mm-hmm. you know, this is a land race, you know, cr- this is this is not something that was bred. This is something that has just continued to grow and has grown well, but now is we're in a whole new world of of climate, water availability, disease pressure. And like that's not sustainable. Right.
1: Well, this is fascinating stuff. Uh we had it started we... to turn it dark at the end. No, no, no. I think that's good. It's, you're offering solutions, not just problems. It's great. Just uh, more local malt. You know, that's awesome. I, we're, we're part of the solution here, not the problem. <laughs> uh, I think if we had been able to come down the gorge today, you might have given us a, an early sample of this, but we haven't had a chance to taste it. So I guess when it's released. could have had it on Zwickelmania Yeah, there you are. Yeah. Uh, missed that one too.
2: Uh,
1: but, we'll come uh, down
0: to the finished product.
1: We'll have to come down to the finished product, and we'll encourage everyone else to do that, um, so that it blows fast and encourages uh, people to make more Chepney.
2: We uh, already got more uh, craft malt coming through the brewery. We we were excited enough on just how it performed at the brew house, so uh, we're starting to play with it a little bit more.
1: That's very cool. Yeah, it's great. That's another reason why these little projects are fun because you can you know put your toe in and see what's going on. So. Everybody, go to Freem in Hood River and try uh, this beer. I guess it's just going to be called De Chepney, right? It's not, Freem doesn't do names.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm working on a PhD and I, I'm the head brewer here. I do not wear any marketing hats.
1: You don't, so yeah, you, you don't do names. All right, that's good. <laughs> well, Campbell, it was really great to talk to you. We appreciate the time and we're excited to try this beer. Absolutely.
2: Likewise, uh, looking forward to drinking one with you.
1: Cool. Yeah, let's make that happen.
0: Well, thanks again to Campbell for joining us. Uh, Apologies for not being able to make it out to Hood River today, but it was a fascinating discussion. Uh, I think it would be amazing if malt sort of occupied the same space as hops in consumers' minds and it became its own own thing because consumers love to talk about hops and new hops and new flavors and stuff. And I think they'd be surprised how much malt contributes to the flavor of beer
1: yeah totally uh i it, it it's a united it's a feature of the United States that we don't care that much about malt um if you go to uh, the Czech Republic you go to Germany you go to especially go to uh, Great Britain you're gonna find uh brewers who not only talk about where they get their malt uh, where they get their barley malted but what variety it is they're very variety sensitive every brewer will tell you what variety they use of yeah. barley, not just the malt house so um that it, it's a, it's a cool feature and they do definitely taste different. Um, so it, it, you know, people have their preferences. One brewery will be, you know, a malt, uh, barley variety X, and the other will be barley variety Y uh, and they care and they really, you know, it, their, their customers care and it really all matters. So
0: hopefully that'll happen in the United States. Yeah. And as you mentioned, if everyone's using Weirman Pilsner malt, it's just a whole dimension of the beer that nobody's even thinking about because it all tastes, that part tastes the same across all right. these craft pilsners which are becoming ubiquitous which is great yeah and brewers are great at brewing them now yeah. um, but usually if they're playing around they play around with the hops right uh, and that's about it uh, so i'm pretty excited yeah environment is a very uh,
1: distinctive malt it has a very distinctive flavor they their they're regular base malt mm-hmm. their barca is slightly less distinctive and um some brewers have started to use that just because it's a little uh you know it's not just doesn't just say vireman uh, (laughs) (laughs) it would be cool if we could find a hop or a malt as distinctive as vireman here in the united states so that you could give it a really
0: like super characteristic american malt flavor i'm looking forward to that all right but i want to interview you for a second so tell me about this project and your involvement in this project a little bit more
1: Yeah, it's part of, so uh, Freem is one of the sponsors of my blogs, uh, my blog, and uh, along with Breakside, uh, who knew-
0: What are blogs again? (laughs) Or something from like the 20th century? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. My website, sometimes I do say website because uh, (laughs) of wags like you. Um, Yeah, so they are one of my sponsors, and- one of the things we did uh, last year was we did a a, a Vienna logger based on how it would have been made by Anton Dreher in in uh, in Austria back in uh, you know the 1840s and this one we wanted to work with on something that was unusual people don't do a lot um, and it you know freemasons as they have evolved in time have gotten a bigger and bigger emphasis on on loggers so one of the ones I pitched was this vychepni, which is in if you are in the Czech Republic, most of the pale lagers are going to be ten degree or twelve degree. The twelve degree is the stronger kind of more extra export strength, and the 10, 10 degree are the ones that that most of the people drink in the pubs most often. Um, but it's not when we talk about Pilsner in the United States, we are usually talking about the twelve degree, uh, and even though the more common one in in the Czech Republic is is the 10 degree so I I thought I've just always felt like it 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 would be cool if more people were making this here in the United States and it seemed like a great thing to pitch so I told them everything I knew about it and they translated it in the way that we just heard Campbell talk about
0: yeah and so what I mean what distinguishes a Chetney from I don't know what distinguishes it it's just lower strength, so it's going to be... Strength. Otherwise, it would be... Sound, it tastes very much like a typical Czech Pilsner.
1: Yeah, it does. Although, you you know, if you're going to brew a beer that's lower in strength, in order to make it characterful and interesting, you do have to treat it slightly differently. Uh, if you just scale it down, it may taste a little bit thin and uninteresting and like it's a watered-down version of a regular one, uh, the regular beer. So working with... Uh, delicate beer like that requires the brewer to be a little bit more specific in what they do with the the you know body building to make it have a little bit of a you know character in the malt um you have to balance the hops a little bit differently because you have less malt to work with uh when it works and i I, uh so i think some of my favorite beers in in the czech republic were 10 degrees when it works it is just tremendous how they're able to pull off this wonderful depth of flavor mouthfeel you know just the whole experience uh and you know it's only 10 percent or only four percent beer so it's, it's i was
0: super excited to hear him to, to hear him say that that's that's fantastic right in my wheelhouse yeah the old man wheelhouse i call it yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and i and somehow i think i completely missed my opportunity to taste the the vienna lager that you guys made so that's very that was very sad
1: it, uh, it that is very sad i was sort of hoping that uh they would do a a reprise of that it was a really lovely beer i think it was pretty well received so um, maybe they can You'll bring it back uh, around yeah work that in somewhere they they did a cool thing with that too i think one of the nice things about doing these little projects is they get to experiment when they did that one they did german grown sauce hops so mm-hmm. it was a slightly different kind of flavor profile because the terroir was different It was a little bit softer mm-hmm. uh, but uh, they used a lot of them so it was robust hopping but
0: and so this beer will be available only at the tap room at the
1: brewery in hood river correct I'm afraid, yeah i'm afraid so i mean kegs I, kegs will probably go out to a few select locations mm-hmm. i'm hoping that we see them in portland somewhere and i if you follow me on uh, twitter possibly i this would make it into instagram but certainly twitter at beervana um i can i can let you know if i hear hear of or see this somewhere um the, the vienna lager did
0: make it to portland so it's always good to have an excuse to go out to hood river which is one of my favorite places uh, so we don't have much of a mailbag but i am gonna i'm gonna use this opportunity to make an appeal which is uh people have been trying to get me to do a, a beeronomics class at oregon state um and i finally relented and so i'd like to to mine the hive mine the all of the uh, listeners of of this podcast and radio show, um, I'd like to ask what what recommendations or suggestions they would uh, have if you were building a curriculum, building a syllabus uh, to do beeronomics. I have a pretty good idea, but I was just curious about what people thought, like what uh, aspects of the of the brewing industry or what kinds of beeronomics topics we've talked about in the past uh, have been most interesting. So, I'm going to make an appeal. Send your questions and comments, uh, Well, not your questions in this case, comments, but Right. Also say, you know we'll, we'll get to the outro where you I'll give you all the details
1: well and let's tag on a general appeal because we are gonna be back in the saddle now um I'm I'm back uh, behind the computer again and the sentient among the sentient so we're gonna get back into our regular routine so we would love to see your other comments questions and criticisms we love your criticisms uh I I know that they will relate to our poor audio, uh, but but keep them
0: coming. We welcome them all. Among all the other poor things. Uh, (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yes, yes. Hopefully we're back to regular, uh, regular, regular Birvana shows. Um, Famous last words, but that's our intent. So That's that's our intent. Uh, All right. Well, we should probably wrap this up because it's getting kind of long. Yep. So a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. Sorry. I'm out of of time. See what happens when you take a month off. Yeah, totally. Uh, That helps other listeners find the show. And as we've mentioned, we'd love to hear from you. So how do you uh, contact us? You send your questions or comments to Jeff at birvanablog.com. That's the email address. Or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at pod. Uh, if you're into these things, if you're kind of like, you know, listen to your music on vinyl and like to get your information in a blog uh, and go to the Beervana blog, <laughs> uh, you can also find Jeff tweeting at Beervana. And you can find
1: Patrick uh, tweeting at Birnomics. Yeah. every once Every once in a while. Every once in a while. <laughs> in a while. Blame Elon Musk.
0: well that's true my twitter is weird now although uh i don't know all i do really is follow news sites so it hasn't changed that much for me yeah yeah so well we didn't really drink anything our our purpose our intent was to drink that beer in hood river uh we'll have to take a rain check on that so um i'll just say cheers to you in general i guess i will say cheers to you in general patrick all right well until next time Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>